Hello. Friends, it's so good to see you. Um, welcome. Uh, my name's Finn, and I'm one of the ministry apprentices here. And it's great to be able to meet with you all this evening. Um, I want to welcome you, especially if it's your first time here or if you're visiting. Um, I want to begin our time together by hearing God's words. The Apostle Paul writes this in his letter to Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 from verse 15. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God's, be honor and glory forever and ever. Isn't it amazing that in the pages of Scripture, we see Jesus, the King, coming into the world to save sinners like us before winning the victory over death forever. I don't know about you, but that's the best news I've ever heard. So if you believe that, then why don't you join me in praising God together? We're going to sing these two songs, Jerusalem and Man of Sorrows. So let's stand and sing. Thank you. 
And let's pray together. Father, we're here to worship you this evening. But we don't deserve to be here. We don't deserve to be in your presence. We don't deserve to have a relationship with you. We don't deserve your spirit that dwells in us. But you've called us here to bring you praise and glory. Not because you're dependent on us, but because you're worthy. Revelation tells us that you are worthy, our lords and gods, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You are worthy of it all. In your glory, your splendor, your majesty, your justice, your wisdom, your sovereignty, your love. You are worthy of more praise and glory than we could ever bring. And Lord, we confess that we've lost sight of that. We've missed that. Father, we've played it down, diminished it, forgotten about it. We've put other things in the way, our idols, the desires of our sinful hearts, the tantalizing gods that this world offers us. We've rejected you as our king and have put ourselves in your place as masters of our own fate. And so we are unworthy, Lord. We are so unworthy of your love. This great love that you lavished on us that we should somehow be called children of God. And it's all by the blood of your son who laid down his life for us and became the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Lord Jesus, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you that our sins have been forgiven on account of your name. Thank you that you took our place on the cross and took all of our sin and guilt and shame and weakness and brokenness and washed it away. Thank you that you overcame sin in that moment. And not just sin, but death. And not just death, but all darkness, all evil forever. You are the victor. You are the champion. You are the triumphant one. You are the Lord of lords and King of kings. And we worship you now as we will in heaven for all eternity, crying out, that you are worthy. Let that be our reality, Heavenly Father, even in our weakness, even in our frailty and the pain that so many of us in this church family are facing at the moment. We seek your comfort for all of those who are facing suffering across the world and for those in our family too. And right now we particularly pray for Celia Barron, at home at the moment. Lord, please uphold her and ease her pain and anchor her faith in you. 
please bring her family to a knowledge of your grace. And we pray too for Norman Wallace. Lord, please strengthen him and encourage him as he waits for this gallbladder operation. May it not be cancelled further, but go ahead as planned. We trust in your sustaining power in these situations and many, many more. And we're so thankful for all of your mercies and for your sovereignty. We pray now, Lord, that you would open up our ears by your spirit to hear about your glory as your word is read and preached to us. May you receive all glory, honor, and power. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. We're now going to listen to God's words, and Alex Smith, one of our members, is going to come and read it for us. The passage is 1 Samuel chapter 17, so please um, get that open in your Bibles, on your phone if you've Got it on there. Let's read that together. Yes, that's 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socher in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephraim between Socher and Ezekiah. And the Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield-bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time, he was very old. Jesse's three eldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his father David, take the, so he said to his son David, take this ephah of roasted grain and these ten loaves of bread for your brothers and hurry to their camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of their unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. There with Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah, fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, 
David left the flock in the care of a shepherd, loaded up, and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. Whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what had been, they had been saying and told him, this is what will be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's eldest brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger at him and asked, why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man, and he's been, he has been a warrior since from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened on his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I'm not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand, chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and, with a sling in his hand, approached the Philistines. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with a shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. 
This very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone stank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sting and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forwards with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Ekron. Their dead were strewn along the Shaurim road to Gath and Ekron. When the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, your majesty. I don't know. The king said, find out whose son this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked him. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. Thanks, Alex. Uh, In a few minutes, Liam, one of our pastors, is going to come and preach to us from that passage. But first, we're going to sing again, singing praises to our King, heaven's champion, Jesus Christ. So let's stand and sing together, beautiful Saviour.
Well, let's turn back in our Bibles, shall we, to 1 Samuel chapter 17. That's the passage we're going to work through. And uh, thank you, Alex, for reading and uh, Finn for leading in the band for playing. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, let's do as we should always do when we approach God's word and pray to him and ask him for his help to understand it. Let's pray. Our Father, when we see your son in Luke 4, in the wilderness, uh, quoting the scriptures to dismiss the devil, we see his own attestation of the truth of these words, and indeed, the perfect application of it. And we pray that you would help us to know the truth from this passage and to put it into practice with the same confidence and certainty. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, who or what is your greatest enemy? Who or what is your greatest enemy? Whose threat for you holds the power of intimidation? Uh, for some, an enemy takes human form. You might be able to name your own personal fearmonger. It might be a cruel co-worker, a school bully, an angry husband, an invading army. For others, though, the enemy is not a person. But that doesn't mean that a threat is uh, no less, well, it's no less real. I mean, it could be losing money, serious illness, climate change losing a loved one. Enemies, whether personal or impersonal, carry a threat that's powerful enough, really, to affect us and the way we live, to paralyze our lives, in a sense, by filling us with fear. But I want to say that none of these are actually our greatest enemy. The Bible teaches us that Satan, sin, and death are. Now, nothing holds greater threat than this unholy triplet. No one is more bent against your existence than Satan and his master general's sin and death. Think about it. Satan has the power to tempt you into damnable sin. He has a finger that, on the one hand, kind of coaxes invitingly, and then once you're trapped, points accusingly. He lays a trap for you and then calls on God to damn you for it. Sin has the power to condemn you. We are by nature dead in our sins, scriptures say, slaves to sin, unable to save ourselves from our sins. Sin is powerful. And death has the power to usher people like us irreversibly into an eternal hell. The spiritually dead, as Ephesians 2 talks about, in death are consigned to what Revelation 20 calls the second death, confirming what we read in the book of Romans. The wages of sin is death. Now, with enemies like these, the threat level is always red, and their intimidation, potentially catastrophic, in regards to us believing the gospel, applying the gospel, and sharing the gospel. That's how serious it is. 
And that's why it's so important to remember the gospel of the Savior who took on our enemies and won, and to live by faith in the victory that he, Jesus Christ, procured for us. That's the Christian struggle, and that's what we're going to be learning about tonight as we consider this account of David and Goliath. If you've missed the last couple of weeks, let me fill you in just very quickly on the backstory. Way back in chapter 8, verse 20, God's Old Testament people, Israel, had rejected God as king in preference for a human king. The reason they gave on that occasion, we want a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. They wanted someone who would take on their most formidable enemies, thinking a human being would be better than the divine being, the Lord God Almighty. Well, God gave them what they asked for, of course, Saul, a head taller than any man in Israel, we read. But he was, as we saw last time, two times ago, uh, he was the letdown leader. In his heart, he arrogantly rebelled against God, and in his actions proved that. He disobeyed him. That's why the Spirit of God departed from him, and has now, as we saw last week, come upon David, anointed secretly as the new king. But what can he do against the enemies of God's people? He's just a boy. And although there is some time that has passed between chapter 16 and chapter 17, there are still echoes and comments throughout the passage that indicate that he's nothing much to look at in terms of the appearance of a warrior. Well, as we learned last time, we're not to judge by appearances. We're not to see as people see, but to see as God sees. And that's what David actually does in the face of this Philistine opponent, uh, Goliath. And I want to walk through this huge passage uh, in two points. One, God's people have a king who sees as God sees. And two, God's people have a king who fights on their behalf. That's the division, okay? So first one, verses 1 to 39, God's people have a king who sees as God sees. Now, verses 1 to 11 tell us that Goliath threatens God's people and the Israelites are full of fear. Okay, verses 1 to 3 tell us that this guy, Goliath, is, well, he's unbeatable in their eyes, really. Verses 1 to 3 say he belongs to Israel's old enemy, the Philistines. Whatever lesson they learned under the heavy hand of God in chapters 5 and 6 has been forgotten for the Philistines here have invaded Israel. That's the point of the place names. They're in God's people's territory. But in verses 4 to 7, we're encouraged to look on the appearance of Goliath himself. And he's a man mountain. I mean, the tallest man in recorded history was Robert Wadlow, 8 foot 11 inches. Goliath's a shade taller. But he wasn't just tall, he was strong. I mean, he'd have to be to wear this battle kit that he's got. His armor alone weighed more than me. And no guessing what that is. He's not just a man mountain either. He's a super soldier. I mean, his weaponry is described in such detail because it's so high tech for its time. Custom made for a mighty warrior. He's like your 7th century BC version of Iron Man, but on the baddies side. And when you read that his armor is scaly, well, it's getting a bit theological, isn't it? You're meant to see a snake. 
He looks like Satan, the serpent in Eden. In Eden, when God's appointed king, Adam, stood before a serpent who defied God himself and wielded the power of death. And Goliath here just represents the same. Would you take this guy on? By all appearances, he is a formidable beast. We not only get to look at his appearance in verses 8 to 10, we get to hear his defiance, and this is key. He offers uh, this thing called representative combat. It's one-on-one, winner-takes-all kind of stuff. Verse 8, choose a man and have him come down to me. If I win, we Philistines win. If your guy wins, you all win. And this combat seems to be Goliath's speciality. He's described in verse 4 as the Philistine champion. But champion in the original Hebrew literally means a man in between. A man in between, that's what he is. So he's coming out to defy the armies of Israel and therefore their God saying, where's your man in between? Well, the answer to that question is that, well, one of the answers to that question is that he's currently pacing up and down in his tent afraid. Saul, the king they wanted to fight their battles, is terrified. And it's no wonder that Goliath bellows such defiance and contempt for 40 solid days. Verse 10, this day I defy. That's an important word. I scorn. I hate. I mock with a passion the armies of Israel. Now I want to say in regard to our enemies today, Satan's defiance is no less hateful bent on ruining God's people, hamstringing God's mission. He prowls, as 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, around this world, which he claims actually as his territory. Jesus himself says so in John 14. He masquerades as an angel of light, but devours like a lion. That's why Jesus calls him in John chapter 8 a murderer. He has been from the beginning. And his weaponry is also advanced most often, though, concealed in subtle lies, temptations, but they're no less deadly than Goliath's swords. All of that could leave us quite afraid, um, as Israel was at Goliath's defiance. When you look at God's people in verse 11, they're just full of fear on hearing the Philistines' words. Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. So despite their history, uh, despite the stories that have been handed down of incredible conquering victories, at this moment, for whatever reason, Goliath looked bigger than God. So Israel are doing exactly what God said people would do back in chapter 16, verse 7. They're looking at outward appearances. Israel sees, as people see, to the point that Each man in that army must have believed that if they went out against this humongous human, he would be on his own and end up as bird food. Now, that's why it's important when even considering our own enemies to apply last week's lesson here, not to judge by appearances. Because if we feel intimidated by the appearances of our own enemies, Satan, sin, and death, then hope fades. Dismay sets in. And when we stop seeing things, even Satan's sin and death as God sees them, then we're hamstrung. 
No one or nothing is bigger than God. Don't believe the bluster of the threat more than the word of God. Only one is powerful. See as God sees. That's what David does. And what a difference it makes. Look with me, verses 12 to 39. In this big section here, we basically see Goliath threaten God's people again. But David, in contrast to Israel, is full of faith. Goliath, in his eyes, is not a formidable opponent, but just a condemned beast. In verses 16 to 23, David, that's Jesse's son, the newly, though secretly anointed, spiritful king, arrives with his brother's delivery order. Uh, he's an errand boy. I mean, did anyone say when he turned up, oh, the champions in the camp? No, they did not. He's holding up cheat. Who ordered the red Leicester? You know, it's a crazy scene. It was then, though, that Goliath stepped forward and spat, verse 23, his usual defiance, and David heard it. Uh-oh. Verses 24 to 26. How does David respond to Goliath's defiance? With faith. While the army flees in great fear around him. You imagine them all running. David standing still and saying, Who is this guy? They, the army, see an unbeatable super soldier. He, as verse 26 says, sees an uncircumcised disgrace, an obnoxious defier of God's people. People? People. And therefore, an insult to God. And this is actually the first time that David speaks in the Bible. It's recorded anyway. We know he speaks. But it's the first time we have him recorded. And what comes from his mouth? A biblical worldview. He sees things as God sees them. He sees by faith, not by sight. And he is jealous for God's reputation to be upheld and for God's people to be protected. And it's beautiful. Is that how we view the world? Uh, our trials, our enemies, all things from a God-centered perspective? Well, David is an example to us. Uh, to all of us who are called in Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says, to live by faith and not by sight. Now, David's interest in the reward for killing this Philistine is like an immediate spark of hope in the army of theological scaredy cats. They're like, oh, no one's asked this question before. No one's asked really about the reward. The news is going round. But this boy David is talking like he believes Israel can actually win. But before he can even face the gigantic Goliath, he has to navigate two other giants in the text. The first is Eliab, the big brother. We met him last week. And he defies David. He scornfully accuses David of neglecting his shepherding responsibilities. There's a little dig there again. Where are the sheep? A few sheep. You can only cope with a few. <laughs> And then he says he's got some kind of deceptive or sick fascination with the battle. Eliab is Goliath before Goliath. But David rightly dismisses his giant brother. Now what have I done? Uh, which younger brother has not said that before? Can't I even speak? I'm looking at younger brothers, looking at their older brothers, or their parents right now, and that's, yeah, that's exactly what we said. But then there's Saul, the second giant. 
He actually defies David too in this text. In verse 32, David goes and just with great faith says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. But he dismisses David. He dismisses David's offer to be the man in between saying, you're just a kid. And he's been raised to be a warrior. What? What hope are you? But God's king is full of faith. He tells Saul not to judge by appearances. David even has even learned the lesson that Samuel was taught last week. And in verses 34 to 35, we find that David has actually fought formidable beasts before. He's tackled predators that threatened his sheep. He's chased down lions and bears and taken them on in hand-to-hand combat. Would you? I mean, I mean, if a, if a bear came up and took a sheep, that was part of a flock that I was looking after and ran away, I'd be like, you can have that one, Baloo. It's fine. I don't want to, who's going to chase after a bear? He's got faith. How did he manage to do this? How did he rescue? How did he come across those victories? Verse 37 says clearly the Lord rescued him. David saw every time the Lord's hand in every aspect of his life. Deliverance comes from the Lord. And to David, therefore, Goliath is just another beast, deserving of death for threatening and defying his flock and God's flock, Israel. And as past deliverances build faith, faith confidently says, as David does in verse 37, he will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And that's God's promise to us. He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness, and he will go on rescuing us. Do we believe that? Well, verses 37 to 39, we find that uh, Saul accepts David's service and tries to dress him up in his kingly armor. It's comedic, really. I mean, imagine David stumbling around like some seven-year-old wearing his daddy's clothes, but it's also sad. Saul still trusts in armor and weaponry for Israel's deliverance. He's just not been listening to the new king. But David declines Saul's armor. To him, victory doesn't depend on the efficiency of what you wear of the armor, but the sufficiency of God's deliverance. That is the difference that faith makes. And the same goes for us. The only thing that we can put on to guarantee deliverance from Satan, sin, and death is Christ. That's all. As Galatians 3.27 tells us, all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ and he, our king, makes all the difference. Well, God's people, Israel, had a king in David who saw as uh, God would see and the truth is we do too. Jesus is God's promised anointed king. Who does the same? He sees as God sees. When he looks at us, he sees us as harassed and helpless, sheep without a shepherd, as Matthew 9 tells us. We're like the army of Israel, lacking courage because we lack faith. But when he looks at our enemy, he doesn't see a formidable beast. Revelation 12 would tell us he sees a dragon bent on devouring the church that he loves. And Genesis 3.15, a serpent whose head is for the crushing. That's his end. 
And indeed, that is why Jesus came into the world, as John, 1 John 3 verse 8 tells you. The reason the Son of Man came into the world was to destroy the work of the devil, to be our man in between, a true champion. And that's exactly what he is. That's why if you don't yet believe in him, you should put your faith and trust in him. He is a deliverer, and he delights to deliver sinners like you and like me. Well, God's people not only have a king who sees as God sees and acts in faith. Secondly, God's people have a king who fights on their behalf, and that's what we see in verses 40 to 58. In 42, well, in 40 to 47, sorry, uh, David, we see, goes out to defy the defier. Not with armor, but with nothing, nothing but a sling and some stones from the valley stream and a passion for God's glory. And in 42 to 44, we see David in Goliath's eyes is dead meat. Verse 42, he looked at David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy. Handsome though, nice point. Uh, but, verse 42, he despised him. In verse 43, Goliath defies David, interestingly, for his appearance and his weaponry. The very things that made Israel afraid of Goliath when they looked at him. Whose kid is this? You can imagine him saying. Who's letting their kids run around the battlefield? This is dangerous. What's with a stick? He bellows his usual hairy-chested threats. I'm assuming he's got a hairy chest. That's not in the text. But he cursed David by his gods. And that's important too. Because that's not going to do well with the Lord God, the only God who tolerates no rival. We've met one of Goliath's gods before in chapter 5, Dagon. And he wasn't that impressive, was he? He was the glued together God. He was the being q God, built by the hands of these people. But he fell and lost his head, and he'll not be the only one. Because in verses 45 to 47, we see David then respond by defying Goliath in the name of his God. And look how he does it. He compares what each fighter brings into the battle. In order to show us who is depending on what for victory, Goliath comes with all the battle-ready tech but David comes in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. So Goliath, in David's eyes, has underestimated David's gods. God. God needs no sophisticated weaponry to save his people. Remember what Hannah said in chapter 2, verses 9 and 10? It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then in verse 46, David turns Goliath's threat right back on him. You say, I'm dead meat for birds. No, you're dead meat for birds. You and your army. And by the end, and by the end of this, he says, verse, verse 47, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, 
and he will give all of you into our hands. The Lord's renown will go global on account of this one-on-one because he is the true champion. He is the only savior of his people. That's why in verses 48 to 58, David defeats Goliath hands down on Israel's behalf and then Israel, God's people, share in his victory. In 48 to 51, David defeats Goliath. Just like his puny God in chapter 5, Goliath is toppled with ease. It's over so quickly. I mean, a slung stone to the forehead did it, and it would. Tests prove, not that I've tried this, it's not me that's done this experiment, somebody else. Tests prove that those slings can fire tennis ball-sized stones at about 100 miles an hour. Now, at that speed, it's not going to bounce. It's going to sink. And it did. To hit Goliath's unguarded weak spot with the first stone surely emphasizes the Lord's hand in it. It's a first-round knockout. It's over so quickly. And David runs to make sure, cutting off Goliath's head with the big man's own massive sword. How ironic. Now, every jaw in Israel's army must have been on the floor in astonishment. It's a surprise. But soon a victory shout rang out for David, the true king, was Israel's champion, the man in between. He'd won. And 700 years later, great David's greater son, Jesus, our king, did the same for us. Straight after his baptism, Jesus faced Satan, the serpent, in the desert. And Goliath's devilish defiance, which was spat for 40 days, reflects the 40 days that Jesus faced Satan's defiant deceit. And Jesus, though, emerged unscathed, wielding the power of the word of God to dismiss the devil's lies. The evil one tried everything to deter Christ from being our champion, from being the one who would lay down his life for us. Even as things progressed, his family tried to put him off, just as Eliab had tried to do. You're out of your mind, Jesus. Come and get something to eat. Or his friend's advice, Peter, never, Lord. You're not handing yourself over to die. I'm not going to let that happen. Get behind me, Satan, Jesus replied. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. And then, of course, in that final contest, Satan marched out as master general, his undefeated, undisputed, barbaric, beastly champion called death. No one takes him on and wins. But by the death of Jesus Christ, the humble king, who laid down his life for the sheep, he died to take away Satan's accusations by bearing the very punishment for them. And he rose to take away death's sting, making it not an enemy for any one of us believers who die in the Lord, but an usher showing us the way into the very glorious presence of God where we will stand and praise and sit and eat 
and rejoice for forever. Taking us into the everything that we have longed for in Jesus. And even sin itself is defeated. While its presence remains, its power is weakened. No condemnation now is dreaded. No temptation can seize us except what we can throw off by the power of the name of Jesus. So what difference does it make to have a champion? Friends, it makes all the difference. But only if you believe. Do you? Do you truly? Because if you don't, the Bible says you're still actually blinded by Satan, whether you realize it or not. Still in your sins and currently consigned to that eternal death that I was talking about earlier, the very place that's reserved for Satan, the defeated champion himself. The single determining factor in whether or not you stay consigned to that is what you believe about Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Turn from sin and take his victory as your own. Ask us about this. Ask the person that brought you or Finn or myself after the service. We'd be happy to chat to you about this. But as for believers, there is one final point of application and I'll close with this based on what we see in 52 to 58. Because in verses 52 to 58, we find not only, we find that after David's victory, we find Israel, the army, the people of God, sharing in his victory. Well, verse 54, David rewarded himself with the spoils of his own victory. That's Goliath's head and sword. They are reminders of his victory, not just for him, but actually for the people. As well, David takes them into his tent. Here, we see later on that he actually takes them into Jerusalem for everybody to look at and enjoy. For everybody to look at and remember. And then in verses 55 to 58, we find Saul, again, not celebrating, not lifting David up on his high shoulders, and, but just starting the mundane ball rolling of rewarding David's family with a pledge of no taxes, and I guess he's going to be my son-in-law now. Note these verses don't say that David isn't known to Saul. They're simply Saul's inquiry about whose son he is for the reward. But he's in, as indifferent as an unbeliever here to the salvation and the victory that God has just won for them. But then in verses 52 to 53, notice this. Israel's reward is their promised land. They reclaimed the land the Philistines had encroached on. And they plundered enemy territory. And I want to leave you with this. We who have been saved by the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ are called to do the same. To plunder enemy territory. What do I mean by that? Well, this is the age of the church. The time when we're clearly instructed by the Lord Jesus himself to go and make disciples. Satan is cast down and bound, powerless to stop the spread of the gospel and the glory of God's name across the territory that he claims for his own, that is, the world. And we, the church, so energetically enthused and delighted by the victory of our champion and the deliverance that we so greatly appreciate, surge forward with a shout or a word, and plunder the camp of Satan. 
not by force, not by sword, but with conviction and the word of God. We have the joy of calling those who belong to Satan's kingdom into Christ's. And God is the one who delivers when we do. That's the call to action in this chapter. It's not to face up to your giants. It's to rejoice in what he, our man in between, has done. It's to live in the light of his victory and reconsider our enemy's threatening influence on our lives to realize that Jesus is our king. He defeated our enemies on our behalf so that we share in his victory and so that the whole world hears about it. Satan's been thrown down, so don't believe a word. Death's sting is gone, so when it comes to it, don't be afraid. And the power of sin is neutered. Let's not give in. Let's bow our heads. Let's take a few moments in the quietness just to uh, pray prayers from our own heart in response to how God has been speaking to us through this passage. death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. But the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. But the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. Let's stand and sing his praises.
through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. Equip us with everything good for doing his will and may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever and all God's people said, Amen.